Good morning. So good to be with you this morning. If you want to get out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to take a break from Matthew to talk about uh, Romans this morning. Um, trying to keep this theme going throughout the year of looking at faith and trying to understand uh, different ideas about faith. Uh, to prepare us and, and to, to build a foundation for us, an, an understanding of what faith is and why it is that we need faith. Uh, have you ever ran into somebody who uh, says, I'm a good person? Um, have you ever known somebody who this is the way other people talk about him? Man, he's just such a good person, as though that is, that's the most important thing. Now that's, it's a good thing, right? We like good people, uh, and, and we hope that people say that about us, that, that he's a good person or that she's a good person. But one thing that we want to look at and think about this morning is, is that enough? Is it enough to be a good person? Uh, and, and can we rely on the fact that I'm a good person overall, as so many people in the world around us do? As we're, as we're looking at Romans this morning, we're going to look at Romans 9 and 10. And this is not an easy text, okay? This is not the kind of text that uh, I, would, I would typically enjoy on Sunday morning with a mixed audience of people who have studied a lot and maybe people who haven't studied that much. But as we look at the book of Romans, we see a critical message being brought to us by Paul. And we've looked at that a little bit uh, whenever we studied Romans 3 a few months ago. But... But we're going to see it brought out again, and, and really it argues against this idea that, that being a good person is enough. And maybe there's somebody here this morning who feels as though they are a good person. And because I am a good person, there's no reason why God would not allow me to go into heaven to be with him for eternity. Uh, I want to, to, to look at this this morning and, and question that and think about that a little bit. Is that true? That because I'm good, that in, in the standard that I'm using, because I'm good, that God will give me salvation, that God will bring me into heaven with him. Look with me at the first five verses of Romans chapter 9. Paul is writing and he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ I am not lying. Now, all the things he said in verses in chapter four through eight is 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 basically pointing to this conclusion and this idea that he's going to reveal in chapters nine and ten. Okay, he has been speaking the truth in Christ. He has not been lying. He says, "My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow." And unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, if you've thought of somebody who is a good person, 
I want you to, to, to understand Paul knows exactly what you're saying. He knows exactly how we're feeling when we think that way about someone else. That they are good and I love them and I want them to be saved. But listen to how he talks about them. He says, I have great sorrow, verse 2, and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish, he says, that I could, I could be accursed and cut off from Christ that they might be saved. What a statement that is of love and devotion to his own brethren, to his own kinsmen, to Israelites. And why does he feel that way toward them? He says they were chosen for this. They, they had all these promises made to them. To them belongs the law, belongs the patriarchs, belongs all the promises, the worship. Uh, they, they were given salvation from captivity in Egypt and brought into the promised land and made God's special people. And they're the ones that all of this salvation through the Messiah Christ the Christ has been done for. They were chosen for this purpose. But, as he says, they are not receiving it. They aren't saved. The way he talks about them makes it very clear. I wish that I could be accursed so that they could be saved. They are not saved. Well, why? Why are they lost? The rest of chapter 9 discusses it. Why are they lost? Uh, is it God's fault? Did God mess up? And, and why do we care about this? Well, hopefully we, we'll see. There's a parallel here between Paul's feelings about his brethren and the way we feel about those around us who are good people and, and maybe even the way that we think about ourselves as being a good person. He, he makes the point in the rest of chapter 9, essentially, and it's complicated, as Romans is, that Israel ultimately should not be saved. Yeah, they were chosen for this. But if you look at history, uh, the history of Israel, they have been rebellious and they have refused God every opportunity they got. I mean, you've got Jacob and Esau... And you got that story, they're descendants of Abraham, and you get to that point and you're just like, they're both bad. You know, both of them are evil. And God chooses Jacob, who's a liar and deceiving, and he says, through him, I'm going to bring Israel. He makes his name Israel, which from him comes the whole nation of Israel. He chooses Jacob, who is not necessarily better or, or great in his own way because he's righteous and he does all these good things, but he chooses him and he chooses to have mercy on him because he sees something in him that he finds favor in. And it, it's like that throughout time that, that God, and he gets to this point of uh, God judges part of the nation, you got the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and he keeps a remnant of people who he does not judge. And it's not because they're so great, it's not because they're good people that he decides to hold on to them. He actually sends them in captivity and punishes them for their sins. And so what Paul says in the rest of Romans 9 is, yeah, they were chosen for salvation, but they've shown by their lives that they don't deserve what God has promised to them. They don't deserve it. 
So as we get to, uh, to, the, to the text in Romans and we start looking through this, we start to see that the majority of the people in history who were Israel were not saved because they rebelled and they refused to listen. And, and now in the first century, we've got Jews and, and these people are different. Unless they think they're different. And so Paul is looking at these Jews and he's talking about them and saying, they're, sa- they're not saved either. They're, they're going to be judged. I wish I could be cut off so that they could be saved, but they are just as rebellious as all the people before them. Paul himself is an Israelite, so he is, he is someone who is actually being obedient. But by and large, Israel has always o- refused to obey, and they are still refusing to obey. In the midst of this confusing and difficult chapter, uh, he talks about the Gentiles as well. Now, the Gentiles are compared to Israel. And Gentiles just means the nations, okay? If you're not an Israelite, you're a Gentile. And the, the way he talks about them is interesting because he says they never pursued God, which they didn't. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, you see Gentiles, the nations, have been evil, They've been idolatrous, they've been sexually immoral, they've been uh, covetous, they've been cruel, uh, they've done all these evil things, and, and they don't deserve this salvation either. So you've got two groups of people, and not one of them deserve salvation. But God has decided to bring about this salvation through Jesus. And so, what's going to happen with these two people? Well, the Gentiles are judged, as well as Israel, throughout time. He tells them that that he's going to judge them, and he does judge them. We see that in Isaiah and Ezekiel. But, But notice how once Jesus comes, and we get to the first century, that there's a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles, because the way that they respond to this new message, this salvation that has come down through the Jews. Look with me at verse 30 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. After he, he points to these two nations and basically these two groups and says they're all unrighteous, which he said that earlier in the book, and he kind of says it again in chapter 9, he then says the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they did not pursue being right with God, they did not pursue being good in God's sight or, or following after the laws, they weren't good people, had become righteous in God's sight. They have become worthy of all the blessings that God has promised. And on the other hand, the Jews who were trying to do all good things and they were trying to be the good people that everybody uh, should see that they are so righteous and they are so good, they did not find God's favor. They did not find the righteousness that God was offering to them. This is what Paul's saying here. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. And Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. There's a reversal that's happened now. The Jews seem like the chosen people. They should be righteous. They should be receiving all these blessings and favor from God. And the Gentiles are supposed to be the rejected people. 
But instead, what we find is the Gentiles have been accepted and the Jews are being rejected. What is going on? (laughs) Why is this happening? Why is there a reversal of all these things? Well, the key word is there in verse 30, that the Gentiles have found, have been given righteousness that is by faith. There's that word that we're studying about and we're trying to understand. Something about faith has has transitioned them from being completely unworthy, the worst of the worst, into ones who find favor with God and are pleasing to God. Well, how does that work exactly? Well, that's what the rest of this is going to be about. How does that work? That that the Gentiles who are unworthy uh, receive it by faith, and the Jews who seem more worthy, even though they're not, because they make mistakes, are rejected. How does all that work? Well, look at verse 32. He says, why? Why did Israel pursue the law that would lead to righteousness and not succeed in reaching that law? Why are they not righteous? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Wow. What is all that saying? As you're reading through that, it's, it's, it's interesting. You see here, they pursued righteousness... Not by faith, but by works. Now, we just talked about this uh, last month, right? James 2, remember, uh, one is saved uh, not by faith alone, but faith and works, right? Faith alone is dead. That's what James says. But here what we see is that works alone is dead. They pursued righteousness. They pursued being pleasing to God on works alone, not by faith. And because they pursued it that way, they failed to find it. They did all these good things. They were good people. They had all these laws that they really focused in on, and they they had their checklist, and they made sure they got all these things right. And then at the end of the day, God says, it's not good enough. Paul's sitting here writing saying, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. They are zealously pursuing righteousness by the law. But it is not according to knowledge that they pursue this. It's not according to knowledge. <laughs> what? How does that work? They're zealously trying to keep the law. They're reading it. They're studying it. They know the scriptures. But they're not understanding what the scriptures are meaning. 
And those words are not sinking down deep into the heart of the people who are studying it. They are zealously checking off a list without any desire to please God, to focus on God, to think about God. It's just, what, what have I got to do? Okay, I'm doing all the things that I got to do, and it's all based on their works. It says in verse 3, they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. They're ignorant of, of who God is, how righteous God is. And they're thinking, they're thinking that by my works, I can become righteous enough to live with God for all eternity. He says, they're seeking to establish their own. They're trying to be righteous by themselves. And he says, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They don't look at God and think, you are so much more righteous than I could ever become. They don't look at themselves and think, man, I'm not getting it. I'm not there yet. They're thinking, look at me and how righteous I am as I do all these works and I perform all these things. You see, in this text, we have two different approaches to righteousness. There is the approach of, I do all the right things, so I am a good person. And there is the approach of, my failure is obvious but I trust in God's Messiah and in God's willingness to forgive me of my failings. The stumbling stone is that we would look at ourselves rather than that we would look at Christ. He says he's laying us in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's Christ. Christ is the stone of stumbling. And it says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, the Jews are all zealous. They're, they're, they're trying to do all these things, and they're focused on themselves. And what do they do whenever Jesus comes? They reject him. And the Gentiles end up accepting him. Why? They don't submit. This is essentially what it's all about. If you hear me... Uh, if you pay close attention to my invitations, you pay close attention to the way that I speak, you're going to hear me use this word a lot. Submit. Submit. What God is looking for is not someone who is focusing on themselves and thinking about all the things that they can do for God to be good enough to earn God's grace, to earn God's salvation. But what you see is someone who recognizes they're not good enough that God is good, and they submit their will to God's will. And this is the picture that, that we're given in the book of Romans. And look at what he says in verse 4, chapter 10. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's something new that Christ has done to end that way of thinking that I am good enough, that I can become good enough, and that I can actually do all the things that God wants me to do and be as righteous as God is. The law reveals to us God's righteousness, and it's supposed to show us we fall short of the glory of God. We're not there. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But Christ has come to make up for our failings, to make up for the difference. So, so all of this, this whole sermon could be wrapped up right here, and that's it. That's, that's the lesson. That's what we need to understand. 
is that righteousness, being right before God, is not about being a good person because we're not there. None of us are good enough. We'll never be good enough to deserve the, the gift of God's grace to get into heaven. We'll never get there. If we think we are, we have lowered the bar so that we can get over it like the Jews are doing. We've been studying in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. What did they say? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And what does Jesus say? No, don't be angry with your brother. Don't lust. <laughs> you see, they've, they've lowered the bar and Jesus raises it back up there. No, you want to be righteous like God is righteous. You keep it up there. And if you fail to keep the law, which he's pointing to the law when he says all of this, you want to keep the law and, and do it perfectly then you're righteous enough. You're a good person. And there's not one of us who have met that standard. So, so this is an extremely important message for us to understand faith, to understand the value of faith. That it's not about me doing enough, but it's about God willing to forgive me for my lacking and trusting in him with all of my heart to make up for my deficiencies. As we continue reading, and we get into chapter 10, we're going to talk about a text that is widely misused <laughs> and, and widely misunderstood. So, so hang in there with me, but we're going, to, we're going to talk about a very complicated text and then a widely misused text. So this is not an easy uh, sermon. This is not an easy idea. But if you got that first part of the sermon that it's not about how righteous we are, that I'm not a good enough person to deserve heaven, but that God's grace is the only way I get in, then you've gotten the most important point out of this lesson. But chapter 10 goes on to describe faith more for us. So if you want to understand what this faith looks like, keep reading, keep studying with me. Verse 5, he says, For Moses writes about the law, about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend to the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does faith say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, in light of all that we've studied so far, this is going to be a little bit easier for us. One thing that he says here, he points to Moses' teaching in Leviticus 18.5 and says, the one who wants to live, and that phrase live is referring to Genesis whenever man was kicked out of the garden, right? If you sin, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. It's referring to a spiritual death. He says, the one who wants to live must keep all of the rules of the law. Leviticus 18.5. You want to live? You want to be righteous enough? you got to keep every single part of that law. Even the stuff the Pharisees and scribes are overlooking. That's, that's what righteousness based on works, based on the law, must say. But righteousness based on faith says something else. And this is confusing. Do not say in your heart, right? Righteousness 
that is by faith, says, do not say. That's like, what are you? I don't, what, Paul, why are you writing like, I don't understand. Um, The righteousness based on faith does not say, who's going to go up into heaven for us and help us understand how it's possible to keep this law, do not be angry or do not lust. Who's going to go down into the abyss and come up from the dead and reassure us that if we do all of this, that then we have hope for life after this. Because that's a big commitment. Essentially, this is the way he's, he's taught. He's using Deuteronomy 30. Okay? If you go back to Deuteronomy 30, we don't have time for that. You're going to see Moses saying, it's not too hard for you to keep the commandment. It's not far off. Don't think it's too hard. Don't think it's far off. And the point behind it is... If you obey the commands, if you love the Lord, and you do not let your heart turn away from Him, He's going to love you back. That's the point of all of that. So even in the Old Testament, there is a description of faith, as Paul is pointing out here, that you say, the Word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, that you have the Word of God in your heart, that you desire to do God's Word. That is faith. Your love for God, your desire, your submission to the will of God is showing that you have faith, you trust in God, you love God, and you believe that He understands your frame and that He will make you complete of what you are lacking. Don't turn your heart away from Him. That's what faith does. Faith does not turn its heart away from the Lord. It it holds true. Even though we mess up and we are failing, it holds true to the love for God and the love for His commandments. So Paul's commentary in this, notice the word that is throughout. That is to bring Christ down. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. That is the word of faith. He's, He's explaining that God has actually done the thing that that they might be tempted to do. Don't say in your heart, you know, who's going to go up into heaven and show us how to do this? Well, Christ came down from heaven and showed us how to do this. Who's going to go across the sea and, and be raised up from the dead to show us that even though we die, we'll live again? Well, Christ did that for us. So he's explaining that to us in his little commentary. And the point of all of this is, That God wants our hearts to love Him and to trust Him. That even though we make mistakes, that we can trust Him and that we can rest assured that He loves us and that He knows where our heart is and that He's willing to forgive us and that we're striving for that perfection. We don't want to be angry. We don't want to lust. We, We want to keep all of our covenants. We want to say the truth all the time. All those things in the Sermon on the Mount. This just fits so well with the ideas and the understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. Because as I was opening up that book, you can feel as though you're righteous until you really study the Sermon on the Mount. And then you're like, okay, I'm not there. And all of us surely have felt that as we studied that. And that's not necessarily what God wants. What he wants is our heart to love him and to strive to obey him. 
The last sections of this are really just reinforcing all of these ideas. He says, you confess with your mouth, uh, right? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart. All of these things are telling us that you're desiring to do the will of God from your heart. You're submitting your heart's desires to him. You're submitting your allegiance to him, confessing him as your Lord. Look at what he says in verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People take this text and say, see, you have to confess and you have to believe. And they don't understand that that's a bigger picture idea of submitting my will to God's will. Whatever God's will is. You know, we kind of look at this and we cringe because it doesn't say baptism and it doesn't say repentance. It's in there. It's the idea of submitting my will to God's will. So the question is, is he the Lord of my heart? And the picture of all this text is that God wants to give those who think that they're good people a realization that they're not really that good, but also a realization that he offers what they need to be made good enough to enter into heaven through the sacrifice of Jesus. Ultimately, he he ends it by saying, how beautiful are the feet of those who spread this good news. And he says that it's not God's fault. The Jews have heard and the Jews have understood the message, but they have refused to submit to the will of God. Look at the last verse, verse 21. He says, but of Israel, he says... All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The problem is they refuse to submit to the will of God. And ultimately, that's our problem today. We look at all of this and we we wonder, you know, what about us? What about, what about, uh, what does this have to do with us? You might have heard this, uh, we're going to talk about Jews and Gentiles and been like, that's not me. I don't, I'm not living at that time. This doesn't even make any sense to me. But think for a minute about ourselves. Are we trusting in ourselves? Am I saying I'm a good enough person to get into heaven? I do enough things right that now I can get into heaven? Or do we, do we wonder if I do enough things right to earn heaven? Well, we see how that, that's the way the Jews are kind of thinking about it. Rather than... Wanting to do the will of God, submitting our will to God's will, and trusting in Him to make up where we're lacking. As we're trying to stop being angry, as we're trying to stop lusting, as we're trying to stop doing all of these things that we know we ought not do. Remember the words of Moses, it's not too hard for you or too far away. He wants to encourage us to have a transformed heart and to have a transformed body and to have a transformed life. The words of Ezekiel that Keith said at the very beginning is that he would put in us a new heart and give us a new spirit that we would love him and that we would desire to do everything that he wants us to do and that we would be transformed to be new people. And that's what we're about. That's what faith does. It has the word of God in our mouth and in our heart. And that is what builds up our faith And it builds up our trust in God to do his will, his way, in every aspect of our lives. And ultimately, we're willing to do all of this. 
because of what Christ has done for us. He's shown us the way. He's shown us that he loves us, that God is, is forgiving and merciful to us, even though we absolutely do not deserve it. The most righteous of men on the earth killed him on a tree. The best we had at the time murdered him. We don't deserve it, but God loves us enough to give it to us anyway. And if he was willing to give us his son for our sins after we had killed him, He's willing to let us be forgiven as we just sang in the song how deep the Father's love for us. Then we have to put all our trust in Him and stop looking at ourselves but have faith that if we're striving to do the will of God in all our lives that He makes up what's lacking and that He helps us to glorify His name in our lives. I know this has not been the easiest sermon. Uh, and this is why we don't understand a whole lot about faith, because some of these texts and some of these ideas are just kind of hard to digest. Uh, but I hope that that simplifies it enough for you to understand that being a good person does not qualify one to enter into the presence of God for all eternity. And, and if you're here this morning and you are a good person, I love you. And just like Paul, my anguish in my heart is for you to understand it's not enough. But God has made a way to make up for what's lacking. And we can submit to his will, give our lives to him, have a transformed life to become more like him. We can put on the blood of Christ, be forgiven of our sins, and be made new. If you're willing to do that. You know what you need to do. You need to, you need to come forward. You need to confess that belief. You need to make the change in your heart. Your desire is going to be to live for him now, repentance. You want to submit to baptism because you understand that is what Acts showed us that people did who, who came forward to call on the name of the Lord. They were baptized. And in the baptism, the sins were washed away. And then from that point forward, they lived their lives for God not for themselves, trusting in his grace and not in their goodness to provide an eternal home when this life is over. If you need to do that, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.